In the 21st century, it can be very easy to forget that darkness exists. Now, I'm not talking about spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness exists everywhere we look. I'm referring to actual darkness. In other words, the absence of light. It's so easy for us to chase away the darkness by simply flipping on a switch in a room or tapping the flashlight app on our phones. We go for a walk at night to escape the light, to try to get in the darkness, but we walk at night and we have street lights and we have headlights and we have neon glow and we have lights coming from homes. It's nearly impossible, if you think about it, to find true and complete darkness in the age we live in. But on the scale of human history, having quick and easy access to light is a relatively new phenomenon. As an example, roughly 100 years ago, in 1925, only half of the United States citizens had electricity in their homes. Fast forward to 1945, and it had expanded a bit, but still only 85% of homes in America had electricity. It wasn't until 1960 or so where it was declared that every home in America had access to electricity. And as a result, now it is entirely possible, it is entirely possible to live your entire life and never truly experience the absence of light. It is entirely possible to live your entire life and never experience true darkness. So with that in mind, I want to begin by doing a little mental exercise together. So do me a favor and close your eyes right now. Everyone in the room, close your eyes. This is a safe space. Uh, just wife or women, just hold on to your purse, maybe uh, a little bit closer. <laughs> All right, close your eyes. Let your mind settle. I want you to imagine that you are in a completely dark room, or at least you think it's a room. The truth is, it's so dark that you can't tell where you are, or how big the space is, or how tall the ceilings are. All you know is that when you call for help, you hear the echo of your own voice bounce back at you from the dark oblivion. The air is cool, and you fear taking a step because you don't know what else, or perhaps who else, may be in the room with you. As you let your eyes linger in the dark, you expect them to adjust so that you can begin seeing forms and shapes in the room. Perhaps you hope that you see a small light creeping through the crack of a distant doorway but it's not there. It's just nothing as far as you can see. All you see is a vast expanse of black abyss. And so you stand in the quiet. You try not to panic, trusting, hoping, praying that someone will come turn the light on soon. But no one comes. You just keep standing there. But then, Right about the time you were about to cower in fear, you hear a familiar sound. At first, the sound startles you, but then you quickly realize it's the sound of a match scratching its way across the striker on the side of a matchbox. And a single flame is lit. One flame that brightens the room and warms your face. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Okay, open your eyes. If you, if you can imagine that scene, then you have a pretty good grasp on what we are going to see in the Gospel of John this morning. Jesus is again back at the Feast of Booths, and he seizes an opportunity, a very rare opportunity, to speak up at a bizarre time, <clears throat> excuse me, to declare that he is the light of the world. In a sense, Jesus lights a match in the darkness, 
and everything in the world changes. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. Now, I know some of you OCD folks are like, hold on, time out. You're skipping ahead way too far. Don't worry. We will come back to those verses next week. I want to jump ahead to verse 12 in chapter 8 this week because most scholars think that this happened chronologically right after the verses we looked at last week. So we've already covered verses 40 through 52 a couple of months ago. And then we will come back to chapter 7, 53 through 8, 11 next week. But for now, I want to go to chapter 8, verse 12. We're going to cover one verse together this morning. Chapter 8, verse 12 says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And that's the verse. Now, in order to understand this verse fully, of course, we need to take a step back and set the context. Remember that this is happening at a festival, a festival that we have been talking about for several months, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, or as the Jewish people call it, Sukkot. And during this feast, there are two major moments throughout the celebration that are meant to remind the people of Israel of God's provision and his goodness over them. One that we talked about last week is the water ritual. The other is known as the lights ritual or the illumination of the temple, as some have called it. And most scholars believe that it is right in the middle of this illumination of the temple, this light ritual, that Jesus stood up and spoke these very words in chapter 8, verse 12. Now, I will explain what that ritual looked like in a bit, but for now, let me explain to you why they did this ritual. So, I'll explain to you what it looks like in just a moment, but first, let's talk about why. The reason why they did this lighting ritual was to remind the people of Israel of three things. First, it was to remind them of the pillar of fire that guided them through the desert. Second, it was to remind them of the glory of God that filled the temple. And third, it was to remind them of the coming Messiah that would be a bright light in a dark world. So quickly, let me show you these three from the scriptures. We'll walk through the Old Testament together. So first, it reminded them of the pillar of fire that guided them in the desert. Let me show you this in Exodus chapter 13. In Exodus chapter 13, you know the story. God's people have been in slavery in Egypt, but they have now been set free from slavery and they begin their journey to the promised land. Verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. And listen to this, verse 21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So when they needed to know where to go, when they needed to know what their next step should be, when they were confused and looking for guidance, they would look to the sky and see a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, this bright shining light in the darkness that would eventually lead them day by day to the promised land. And this lighting ceremony that's happening in John chapter 8 that Jesus was at reminded them of this sweet provision and direction from the Lord. But it also reminded them of the glory of God that would fill the temple. 
So second, the glory of God. This is in 1 Kings chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll put these words on the screen. I want to read several verses to you. But after the Jewish people, they they wander in the desert. They make it to the Holy Land. Solomon then builds a temple, a permanent tabernacle, if you will. And we see this building occur in 1 Kings chapter 6. But then in 1 Kings chapter 8, we see the glory of God fill the temple. Listen to this. And again, we're going to read a few verses here. But listen to all that goes into this moment. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. Keep reading, verse 7. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from the outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And listen to this, verse 10 and 11. When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So they, they finally make it to the promised land. Solomon builds this permanent temple. Rather than tra- a traveling tabernacle, they now have a brick and mortar temple. And what happens? God's glory fills this place. Elsewhere in the Bible, this glory is described as a bright light, one that was so bright that people could not look directly at it. And this lighting ceremony at the Feast of the Booths, the very feast that Jesus is at in John chapter 8, would have reminded the people of Israel of this moment in their history when God's glory filled the temple. But it wasn't just a reminder of the pillar of fire by night or that God's glory filled the temple. It also reminded the people of Israel of a promised Messiah that would one day come as a bright light in the middle of a dark world. Let me show you this in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, one of the more famous messianic prophecies, dreaming of that future day when the Messiah would come, Isaiah says this, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then again in Isaiah 60, we read this. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light. Future Messiah. Some rabbis said the the Messiah's name would be light because of this. And this lighting ceremony at the Feast of the Booze, the very feast that Jesus was at in John chapter 8, reminded the people of Israel of this future hope. Okay, so it reminded the people of Israel of these three things. Now with that in mind, fast forward to the actual ceremony on the night that it took place at the feast. What did this ceremony look like? 
Well, it occurred in the temple courtyard of the women, which was an open area in the temple, an area, as the name suggests, that allowed women to join the men of Israel in worship. And in this courtyard, there were four giant columns set up, and on top of those columns were these massive golden bowls, and the temple servants would climb up to those bowls on a ladder, and they would pour oil into those bowls until the oil was flowing over the brim of these bowls. These were very tall. Everyone could see them. Then these servants would use, and this is kind of weird, but it happened, they would use old priestly undergarments as wicks for the oil. Now, that adds nothing to the point of this sermon, <laughs> but I read it in a commentary this week, and I was like, well, I got to say that. I mean, I got to share it with our people. So people would then, they would light these undergarments and then people would start singing and dancing and shouting and celebrating this remembrance that God guided them in the desert, that God filled his temple with his glory, that God would one day send a Messiah, one called light. And this light from these four pillars would cast light over the entire city. Now, I have tried all week to envision what this might look like, but I have not been able to wrap my mind around it. But then, as I was sitting on a plane, it hit me. I, I used to date a girl who had a brother who was really into Burning Man. Now, if you don't know what Burning Man is, uh, it is basically a giant hippie festival that happens every year in the desert of Nevada. Just imagine like dreadlocks and Birkenstocks and patchouli oil as far as the eye can see. And then the last day of this festival, this big hippie party, they will light a statue of a giant wooden man, hence the name Burning Man. And then they would just cut loose and party for hours on end. So one time I was hanging out with uh, my girlfriend's brother and I asked him about his experience watching this fire and he got (laughs) teary-eyed as he reflected on it, as if it were a life-changing, soul-altering moment, The, the way one would talk about their wedding day or the birth of their first child. And I watched him with tears in his eyes explain this to me. And I I remember thinking, this is probably mushrooms talking. This isn't like a normal, this isn't a normal response to seeing something like this. In a very different but similar way, (laughs) I imagine the celebration, hang with me, I imagine the celebration looked a lot like that. Just hordes of people, hordes of people, probably in Birkenstocks, actually, (laughs) or something like them, just celebrating and dancing and shouting for joy. The Mishnah, which was an ancient Jewish handbook, says that if you you haven't seen joy and wonder until you've seen this very celebration. Scholar D.A. Carson described it like this. He said, men of piety danced through the night holding burning torches in their hands and singing songs and praises. The Levitical orchestras cut loose, and some sources attest that this went on every night of the feast with the light from the temple area shedding its glow over all Jerusalem. Okay, now, with that image in your mind, it is into that moment, into that context, that Jesus stood up in the middle of this celebration and declared, I am the light of the world. 
In other words, I am the pillar of fire that guides your every move and enlightens your path. I am the glory that fills the temple. I am the Messiah, the chosen one. I am the one who not only fulfills your past, not only the one who is with you in this present moment, but I am the one who will lead you into your future. In other words, the match had been lit in the dark world and the world would never be the same again. The question that we have to ask, question you should ask every time you study your Bible, so what? So what? What does it mean? What do we do with that? What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? How should that impact us in any real or tangible way? How does that change our life as we leave this place and head back into the chaos of the world? Four truths that stem from this reality. Four truths that stem from this reality. First truth is this. Jesus is the true light. Jesus is the true light. I believe that John's primary reason for coming back to this theme of light again and again and again is to help us, the reader, see and gaze upon Christ, the light of the world. The question that you might be asking, and it's the question I wrestled with, is what does that actually mean? What does it actually mean that Jesus is the light of the world? Well, it could mean a lot of things, but we have to start with the purpose of light. In the primary purpose of light, is to illuminate reality. You see, darkness hides reality. It hides the truth. It covers up what is really in front of us, but light exposes what is true. It exposes what is reality. Maybe I can explain it like this, um, and I've explained it like this in the past, but both of our daughters went through this phase when they were about three where they became convinced that when the lights went off, the monsters came out, that there were monsters in their room, And I love that season of being a father. Like, I thrive in that kind of environment. And so they would go, Daddy, Daddy, and I'd run in. And and they would point to the corner of the room or behind a chair under their bed. And they would go, there's a monster there. And so sometimes I would sit down and I would rub their back and I would say, sweetie, monsters aren't real. But then other times, in a very counterintuitive dad move, instead of reminding them that monsters aren't real, I would say, where'd you see the monster? (laughs) And I would get all serious. And then I would wrestle the monster into submission. And then I would kiss them on their forehead and remind them that daddy can beat up any monster that might be in the room. <laughs> and so for a long period of time, my daughters both lived in this tension, this tension between monsters don't exist, but yet daddy can beat up any monster that might be in my room. <clears throat> that was my method, anyways, as a father. My, my wife, their mother, uh, went a different and I would say more mature route and just bought them, just bought them a nightlight, um, <laughs> which... Worked a lot better. <clears throat> and here's why it worked better. Because the, the nightlight revealed what was actually in the room. It illuminated the darkness. It revealed what was really there. Brothers and sisters, we live in a dark world. And sometimes it is really easy, painfully easy, to convince ourselves of things that are not true. Either about God or about ourself. But... Jesus comes into the world as the light of the world, and he illuminates what is true of God, and he illuminates what is true about each of us. And every time we go to the Bible, the Bible reminds us of those truths. So my encouragement to you is to let God shine light on your true identity. When I say true identity, I mean your identity in Christ, not your identity in your vocation, not your identity in your sexuality, not your identity in your gender, not your identity in the family of origin issues you carry into this place, but your identity in him. Jesus is the light of the world. 
See him for who he really is and allow him to shine light on who you really are in him. But not only is Jesus the light of the world, second, we are called to walk in the light. We are called to walk in the light. Jesus says as much in the passage we looked at. He says, anyone who follows me will not walk in darkness, but in light. Now, at a high level, I think Jesus is simply talking about the domain of darkness and the domain of light, meaning that we have been called out of the domain of darkness and into the domain of marvelous light, as Peter describes it in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But I do think there's more to this because later John will come back to this theme. Later in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, John writes this. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Let me tell you one of Satan's greatest strategies to destroy you. And I'm not just using strong language to scare you. I really mean this. I think one of Satan's greatest strategies to destroy you is darkness, secrecy, concealment. What happens time and time again, and I've seen it play out dozens of times in our church, is someone will have a secret sin or even an unwanted thought going on in their life, and it will usually start small. And the thought itself may not even be sinful per se, it's just an unwanted dark thought. But instead of immediately bringing that thought into the light and telling a trusted friend because of fear or shame or embarrassment, they conceal it. They tuck it away. But here's what happens. It festers and it grows and it turns into something much darker. Here's a lesson that my first boss in ministry taught me that I'll never forget. He used to say, no one ever just wakes up one day in a happy marriage and decides to commit an affair that afternoon. Never. It never happens that way. It always starts way before that moment. It starts with a communication breakdown with your spouse. It starts with putting physical intimacy with our spouse on the back burner. It starts with a friendly conversation with a coworker that goes too far. It starts with a lustful thought life that leads to an addiction to pornography that leads to you fill, fill in the blank. And that's true of other sin too. It always starts small. Think about it. No one ever wakes up one day. No one who is living a healthy, holistic life ever wakes up and goes, you know what I want to do today? I want to try meth. That sounds like a great idea. No. What leads up to someone getting addicted to meth? Years, years of sinful, poor decisions. Destructive sin begins small. It's usually not a sin that will ruin your life or cost you your job or destroy your marriage. But here's what happens. You feel guilty about it. You feel like as a Christian, I shouldn't struggle with this. Or you think, I'll just conquer it on my own. I don't need to invite other people into this process. I can conquer it on my own. And you make the detrimental decision to just keep quiet and not tell anyone. And in that moment, please listen to me. In that moment, when you decide to keep it a secret, the enemy's hook is set. His talents sink deeper into your soul and you are in dangerous and damning territory in that moment. Because again, here's what always happens. And the darkness and festers and grows. So what might have at one time been a small sin or an unwanted thought grows and eventually it will actually cost you your family or your marriage or your job. And at that point, when you've gone that far in your sin life, then you're stuck. Then you're stuck because if you tell someone now, the gig is up, everyone knows. And so what you do is you go, I'm just not going to tell anyone ever. And you just keep living in the dark. 
I've seen it time and time again. And there are only two outcomes to this type of secret life. There are only two natural outcomes to this type of secret life. Best case scenario from an earthly perspective, you are really good at hiding your behavior. And you make it to your final day without anyone knowing. And then you die. And your loved ones mourn a man or a woman that they didn't actually know. And you have to stand before a holy judge who knows you inside and out. Best case scenario from a heavenly perspective is this. Your sin finds you out and you are drug into the light. You are caught in your sin and you have to finally deal with this sin in a very public and humiliating way. But there is another option. There is another option and it's the most terrifying one of all. Rather than living a secret life, you can voluntarily, on your own initiative, walk into the light and confess your sin to someone. At that point, the enemy has no stronghold. It's over. His game to destroy you is done as soon as you bring it into the light. Just a moment ago, we read 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Let me read you the next few lines in that same section. He says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, some of you, and I imagine many in this room are thinking, wait a second, Justin, if I confess that, if I finally bring that secret sin into the light, it might cost me my marriage. It might. It might, but at least it won't cost you your soul. I have a few friends who have lived through their sin coming to light in very public and painful ways. And if you talk to each of those people, and I've asked each of them, they will all say the same thing. Though it was the most painful and humiliating day of my life and in my family's life, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because my sin was not hidden anymore. Let me give you a practical way to live this out. I don't want to just leave that on you and then not give you a way to apply this. This is how it plays out in my own life. I have a a sweet brother in the Lord who's part of our church, and we just have an agreement with one another that if we are ever feeling tempted in any way, even if it's embarrassing, even if it's something that we don't want other people to know, we just have an understanding that in that moment, before it gets too far, we will send one another a text to let them know this is how I'm feeling. So it is not uncommon for the two of us to send or receive text messages that say, hey man, I'm having a really hard day. I'm really stressed out. I came from a really stressful meeting and I'm just feeling an urge to go home and drink way too much tonight. Can you check in with me about seven o'clock to make sure I'm not doing that? Or to have a text message come through that says, hey man, I saw something at work today that just, it caused me to have unwanted thoughts and it's dark and I do not want to go down that road. Will you, will you send me a text at five o'clock when I get off to make sure that I'm okay? And we bring it into the light. And here's, here's what happens. As soon as it's in the light, it loses its power. But if you keep it in the dark, the hooks are set. Jesus is the true light. We are called to walk in the light. And third, we are called to be the light. Not only is Jesus the light of the world, but he says, we are also the light of the world. 
This is from his famous sermon in Matthew chapter 5. Let me read you a few verses. Matthew chapter 5 verse 14 says this, you, talking to those of us who are followers of Jesus, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the ancient world, it was very common to build cities up on hills for protection but they, so they could see anyone who was coming to attack them. But the inverse is also true. Jesus mentions that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You can see it from miles away. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, we would never do that. But on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In case you haven't realized this yet, this drastically shapes how we do church here at TCC. You see, historically, at least in the past couple decades in America, we've seen this movement in churches where they have done everything possible to make the Sunday gathering the light in a city. And so mailers are sent out Lots of time and money and energy is spent on making this one hour on Sunday morning as amazing as possible. And so what churches will do is they'll build massive buildings. They'll put a coffee shop with a full espresso bar in the building. They have the best children's ministry. It just looks like Disney World for Jesus. They give away Harleys on Father's Day. I mean, churches like, I'm not exaggerating. They go all out on the Sunday morning. It's what I have lovingly referred to over the last seven years as the lights, lasers, and fog machine type of church. Now, I want to be really clear. I poke fun at at that all the time. I don't think there's anything wrong with that model. It would be, honestly, I think it would be ignorant and arrogant of me to say that that's wrong. There are a lot of churches in this area. I have a lot of pastor friends who do that model of ministry, and they are reaching people for Christ and praise God. Here's what I'm saying, though. Us to be that type of church. What we feel like God is leading us to do is to live out our collective identity as light, the light of the world, out in our neighborhoods and at our workplace and at our schools. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Not some pastor, not some staff, not a building, not an event that happens on a stage on Sunday morning, but you are the light of the world. So let me say it as clearly as I can. The Sunday gathering, though important, is not our strategy for reaching the city. Table kids, though important, is not our strategy for reaching the city. Preaching, though important, is not our strategy for reaching the city. Our strategy for reaching this city for Christ is you. It's all of you, transformed by the gospel, working in every domain of society, transformed by the gospel and working at Intel and Nike and Adidas and Insomnia, transformed by the gospel and being the best barista or carpenter or school teacher you can be, transformed by the gospel and playing pickleball or cornhole at the Hillsborough Parks and Rec League, you transformed by the gospel and befriending your meth head neighbor, you transformed by the gospel and going to the mom's club at the local library, you transformed by the gospel and mowing the yard of a widow in your neighborhood. It's you living out your identity as light out there. That is our strategy for reaching the city with the gospel. I love the way pastor and author N.T. Wright explains it. He says, our task is image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians. Following Christ and shaping our world is to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. The gospel of Jesus points us and indeed urges us to be at the leading edge of the whole culture, articulating the gospel in story and music and art and philosophy and education and poetry and politics and theology. May we be a people out there on the leading edge of culture and society as the light of the world. So here's my question for you. What are you doing with your life 
with your time, with your money, with your house, that is pushing back the darkness in our world. Your time, your money, your home, everything that you think is yours is not yours. It's God's. And you have been entrusted with it as a steward. How are you stewarding your resources and your time and your talents and your energy to push back the darkness in the world? And you may say, well, Justin, I go to church and I tithe sometimes. That's good. Keep doing that, please. But you can't stop there. It is so much more than that. Jesus is the true light. We are called to walk in the light. We are told that we are the light. Fourth, there is a day coming when darkness will be no more. There's a day coming when darkness will be no more. Right now, we live in what is often called the already but not yet kingdom of God. And here's what that means. The kingdom of God is here and now. It is breaking forth every day all around us, and yet it's not fully here. So when you look around, though the kingdom of God is here in some ways, there is still darkness, there is still pain, there is still hunger and war and oppression, which is why we are called to be the light in the world and push back darkness. But here's where it gets really good. There is a day coming when the kingdom of God will be fully established. And on that day, there will be no more darkness. Listen to the way John describes it in another book he wrote called Revelation. This is in Revelation 21. He records these words. Of the future, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no darkness there. Friends, on Resurrection Sunday, that very first Easter, as the sunlight broke the horizon, the light of the world conquered the darkness of death. And on that final day, darkness will not exist because this death-conquering Savior will be our eternal light. In the end, all that is wrong in the world will be made right as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will become the lamp by which all nations and all peoples walk together in the light of day. I'll close with this. Each year, usually around May, June, we get that first warm, clear summer day. The rain stops, the clouds part, and the rays of sunshine start burning pasty white skin all over the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> and on that day, you can bet your life that you can find me sitting in the direct sun somewhere. When that first day of summer hits, I will spend every hour possible sitting in direct sunlight because I love the sunshine that much. This continues all summer long. And so as we, end the, as we near the end of summer, and we head into fall. Those warm, sunny days are drawing to a close, and I find myself savoring those moments even more. This weekend, I was doing some yard work, and it was just the perfect weather. It was just mid-80s, sunny, and several times throughout the afternoon, I would just stop, and I would turn my face toward the sky, and I would just sit in and savor those last moments of warmth before God turns his face from us and winter sets in for nine months. <laughs> Earlier, I read to you Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, but I want to go back to that verse because I think it's such a beautiful picture of what we get to experience every day as followers of Jesus. 
Isaiah 9 verse 2 says this, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Brothers and sisters, we live in a land of deep darkness. And yet, the light of Jesus is shining down on us. My hope for you as your pastor is that you would bask in the light of Jesus, that you would daily sit in and savor his goodness and his kindness and his love and his mercy for you. As we prepare for worship and we take communion, and as you leave this place and head into the world, I pray that you would heed these words and believe them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace.